Good morning, everyone. It is truly great to be back with you this morning. We had a lot of fun last week. Uh, we went camping as a family. You might have noticed, I don't know if you watched the radar, but it rained a lot um, for about 11 hours, it felt like, one day. But you know what? We had a blast anyway, even in the tent. We didn't get that wet. We had a lot of fun. Um, it, it was great. But, but one thing that we got to do, in case you ever wondered, what does a pastor do when he's not preaching on a Sunday? Well, any time I get the chance, I, I go to church. Yeah, true. I, I really do. I, I go to church. So we went to church um, really close to our house the other day. Um, a little, a, a bigger church than this, um, but they have a much bigger facility. And so they're all able to meet at one time, which is a, a phenomenal blessing for them to be able to do that. Um, and here's what I noticed. Um, I, I noticed something about that church that I really, really appreciated. It's the church that we want to become. Because that church was really, truly a family. Uh, they had somebody pass away that week before. And you know what? I bet probably 80% of the people in that room on Sunday morning knew that person that passed away. Maybe more. They talked about some other incidents that happened over the last few months. And I bet probably every single person in that room knew at least one, if not every single one of those people. Why? Well, because the people there were intentional about building that community. They were intentional about meeting one another, spending time with one another, silly things like going to lunch with one another on a Sunday or an evening during the week. They're a part of small groups and classes together. And, and uh, it, it just gave me hope that there's a direction that we're headed and it is absolutely the right direction for us. If you didn't know, um, this actually marks the very beginning of our second year here. On July 15th last year, that was the first Sunday that I got to be with you guys and my new family. And uh, so it's truly been one year. So we're starting the second year together right now. So just beware of that and hang on. Be ready because uh, God has some things in store for us and uh, we are all going to be a part of this thing together as a big old family rolling through it. So I am super, super excited about that and just thank you for the opportunity to serve with you, to get to know you. There's still so many of you that I don't personally know yet and that is my desire is to do that. And so I'm going to keep working on that um, throughout the, the upcoming months and years uh, to come. In the meantime, we would really, really, really like to take a group of folks to Poland here in about two months. Literally, it's about two months away from this point right now. Um, we still need about two more people. If we can get two more people to go, then we can make this trip happen. There only needs to be about six of us um, to be able to go. And so um, if you would like more information about that, please talk to me after service. Uh, I'll meet with you this week. We'll, we will get it on board. We will help figure out the finances. We'll, we will get it worked out because we think this is important. I got an email from Andres, our, our missionary over there, asking me the status last week. I didn't reply because I was on vacation. But um, I I will reply tomorrow, hopefully with two more names um, for him to plan on us coming to. Um, we're continuing to sign up kids' classes. Keep in mind that that's an ongoing process. Um, we are still on the lookout, and as a matter of fact, we're just going to go meet someone this week, just have lunch with them, and, and see about potential with that individual. Just to let you know, we're still working behind the scenes on that one. Uh, one last thing, and that's this. Um, we've developed this relationship with Forest Park Elementary School. Uh, how many of you saw the big giant article in the paper this week about another church in town doing something similar? Okay, now please note, we didn't do that on purpose. I don't really care if anybody knows that we're doing it, because that's not why we're doing it. We're doing it for the kids and the families and the people at the school. That's awesome that they're doing that. I'm so excited that they're doing that. I know one of the reasons why they got inspired to do that. Yeah, you do too. So that's awesome. Get the word out, please. We need more and more and more people helping. We would like to have a meeting on um, the 31st of July 
just in the midday for anyone that's interested in helping to plan this next year with Forest Park. Plan some events, plan some opportunities to, to intentionally serve over there. And so that's going to be on the 31st of this month. I'll remind you again next week at 1130. Uh, we're going to meet for lunch and just talk about ideas and dream a little bit about what God might be able to use us for at that school this year. Like I said, we have an open door to kind of do what we feel like God's leading us to do in ways to help. So if you're interested in that at all, we need a couple more folks uh, to kind of help plan that. And so if you are able, if your schedule allows you to help us plan things like that, we would love to involve you with that thing. In the meantime, uh, Cheryl Williams has met with uh, another person here in the community that had met with all the teachers at Forest Park and said, hey, what kind of things could you use for your classroom? Kind of a dream wish list, if you will, from the teachers at Forest Park. And they met with that and the, the opportunities they had to provide those needs kind of went away. And so Cheryl partnered with her and they've come up with this list. So out there on this table are just two items, I think is what she told me, the top two items for each teacher in that school to just have as a resource in their classroom. If you've walked into Walmart or any other store lately, you'll notice what's right in the front door. Back to school items, and most of those items are right out there on that table. If you'd be willing to grab a few of those and pick those up and bring those in, we would love to bless those teachers with those items for their classrooms coming up. If all of those disappear, which we would love for them to all disappear today, she has a whole bunch more to set out. We just wanted to, we didn't want to overwhelm you. We just wanted to set out a few to start with. Uh, what a great way to just let those teachers know, hey, we're thinking about you, we're praying for you, we care about you and your kids in your classroom. We want to help you out however we can. All right, let's pray. And then we're going to dive into to today's message. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the chance to be back with your people in this place. It was awesome to get to spend last Sunday with your people in another place, preaching the same Jesus, same gospel, the same Bible, loving the same God, worshiping the same God. Father, all across this globe, Father, today be with us as we study about your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this is an incredible way to kick off this series. Um, we did not get a ton of questions in, which was kind of disappointing. I, I, I really, really want you guys to understand how valuable you are to the body of Christ. We know that in a lot of churches, a lot of people don't have a lot of input into things that happen and things that go on and even ministries and missions and opportunities like that. And we want to change that culture here so that you feel like you are not just a part of the church by sitting here, but you are literally part of this family and helping guide this ship as we try and try and try to grow closer to closer to God. So we've got these questions that we've kind of formulated. And I'm excited about them. The very first one, um, just to let you know, came from a sixth grade boy. Yeah, a sixth grade boy took time to write in a question. Just throw that out there for those of you that didn't send anything in. Um, the question was this, who wrote the Bible? How and when was it put together? Now, if you're like me, this is a question that a lot of you have asked. Now, some of you have been just part of the church your whole life, and you just accepted this book, which I put 10 or 15 copies of different ones up here from my office. I've got 20-some different Bibles, at least, in my office. But we've had that similar question. I've always wondered, as a kid, I wondered, where on earth did these words come from? How did we get them? How did they possibly get put? Wait, they're in English. They didn't speak English back then. How did that happen exactly? I know I have always been curious, and here's the reality— to be honest, questions about the Bible and its origin are a very specific reason why a lot of people will not believe in Jesus. And so we need to be prepared to answer some of those questions. To be honest, 
If one researches, takes time to invest in studying just a little bit about the Bible and where it came from and its origins and things like that, it is quite possible that once you realize the fact that this book even exists at all is a miracle, then one might just actually come to faith in Jesus by that study. I personally love sharing this with you. I, by trade, am actually a teacher. And so in essence, this is a great lesson for us to learn together. As I prepared this message, I prayed and prayed and prayed that God would help me kind of hone things in and narrow things down a little bit, some clarity and focus and purpose in this information I'm going to give you. First, to, to answer some questions that people might have about the Bible, to eliminate some, about, some doubt, but most importantly, to inspire some of you to dig deeper, because there's no way on earth we could possibly cover everything that went in to the creation of of this book. So what we're going to do is hit the high points of those things. So, so here's what I want to do. I'm going to start with this. How many of you have ever had a question about the Bible in your life? Just raise your hand. How many of you have ever had a question in the Bible? Okay, that's interesting because only one of you turned that question in. See, I gotcha. I gotcha with that one. I knew I would. I even typed the word gotcha on the paper three weeks ago because I knew that would happen. All right, that's the kind of thing. We want this to be an environment where you feel open to do that. There is not a bad question about this topic. We want you to have that freedom to engage with us. And I might not know the answer, and I'll be the first one to say, I don't have a clue. But I'll talk to someone that might or can at least point me in the right direction. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to flip the table on you. I'm going to give you four questions just to think about to start with, right? Number one, how did the ancient Jews, how did the ancient Jews interact with the Bible? putting that in parentheses, because you know that God did not name this book, right? Yeah, that, the name of that book is not found in that book, right? God did not name the book. We named the book, so just keep that in mind. Number two, was Christianity, Christianity as we know today, was it founded on the Bible? Ponder that question. Question number three, how did the first Christian, the very first birth of the church, how did they interact with the Bible? Last question, true or false? Without the Bible, it's impossible to know Jesus. Ponder those questions for just a moment. Hopefully you got some thoughts stirring around in your head. Now I'll probably take you a different direction. Hear, hear this though. All of us, every single one of us have grown up during a time period of mankind where the Bible as we know it existed, as far as we know, forever. Most of us grew up in homes where not only did you have a Bible or the house have a Bible, but probably everyone had a Bible with probably Bibles to spare on the shelves, didn't we? As we begin our study, you must know that for the majority of human history, this was not the case. Also, please note that we are now in a time where there might be more similarities to the time before the Bible ever existed than the last 1,600 years where it has. So does this reality of the times in which we live affect how we should interact with the Bible? Does it change how we should use it or how we should reference it? Well, I, I really, really, really think that it should. So here we go. Let's answer those questions. How did the ancient Jews use the Bible? Well, the ancient Jews dating back to the original Jew, if you will, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, the prophets, um, they didn't have the Bible at all. <laughs> so they didn't use it. Sorry, I hate to tell you that. The Bible didn't exist yet. 
It's, it's a true statement, if you didn't know that. It wasn't until the time of Moses where any of the Bible whatsoever at all had even begun being written because Moses is credited with writing the first five books of the Bible somewhere between the year 1600 and 1400 BC. Now keep in mind those letters BC before Christ aren't true. There was never a time literally before Christ. This was just before his physical birth on earth. So keep that in mind. Moses is credited with writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy during that time period. Those books make up the Jewish books of law or the Torah. In Christianity, we call those first five books the Pentateuch. Now, they're not likely the oldest books of the Bible. There's another book that gets that credit, which is interesting because we don't know who wrote it or exactly where it came from. But the book of Job was likely based just before the time of Moses, probably in the same region where Moses retreated to whenever he ran away from Egypt. It was probably written somewhere as early as 2000 BC. And what that does is it puts it in the category of some of the oldest literature ever discovered by mankind. The oldest piece of literature ever discovered is the Epic of Gilgamesh, as it's thought, somewhere written between 1500 and 2000 BC, possibly set as early as 2700 BC. Now, why do I tell you all that? Well, I tell you all that to tell you this. Illiteracy, illiteracy was the norm during the time of Jesus and before. A very, very small percentage of people could read or write at all. Stories were all shared orally. Only specifically trained individuals would have the ability to read or write. We'll talk a little bit more about that later on. Number two, was Christianity founded on the Bible? No, not at all. Especially for the Gentile believers. Their faith was completely, completely determined or based upon the testimony of folks like the disciples, Paul, and other believers who had accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Yes, the old Jewish texts existed. We'll get to that in a minute. The books of law, the Psalms, the books of history, the prophets, but those were Jewish. So Jewish Christians might have had an understanding of those ancient scriptures, but the Gentiles didn't know anything about them at all, nor did they probably care. You see that in the early church as conflict begins to arise between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians and what's important. We're now in a time much like those early Christians where we're showing the love of Jesus to people that know very little, if anything at all, truly about him. It's not likely that they're going to go around and find a book that was written 2,000 years ago, pick it up, and just begin reading for the fun of it. So we've got to find a way to persuade them to look inside those covers. Now, some of you might be wondering, well, what about Paul's letters? What about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Didn't the first believers have those? Well, yes and no. You see, very, very few of those early followers of Jesus received those letters. They were targeted to very specific geographic location, church plants of Paul and the disciples. Yes, they were then copied and passed and distributed within those areas and ultimately made it around the world, but they wouldn't have all had it initially. And they by certainly no means no one ever had all of them all comprised all together at once as the Bible the way that we know it. Questions three, how did the early Christians enter the first Christians interact with the Bible? Well, they didn't because it wasn't there yet. 
and they didn't have access to the Jewish scriptures either. Again, a reminder, the literacy rate during the time of the Roman Empire, some scholars suggest it was as high as 20%. Most realistically think it was around 10% of people were literate. In reality, in all the suburbs and even in the inner cities, it would have been more like 5% of people could actually read. So I ask you, if they had a copy of the Bible, could they have had anything to do with it? No, (laughs) because they couldn't have even read it on their own. Last question, true or false? Without the Bible, it's impossible to know Jesus. Well, I think probably by now you kind of get where we're going with these questions, don't you? Peter didn't have the Bible. James and John didn't have the Bible. Paul and Barnabas didn't have the Bible. Apollos didn't have the Bible. Yet somehow they were able to spread the gospel of Jesus across the entire world as it was known at the time. You see, the Bible with the 27 books of the New Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament, was not finalized until the 4th century A.D., more than 300 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Now, all that being said, do you have to have the Bible in order to discover Jesus, to love him, to serve him? Well, no. No, but, but... There's something special about this book. God has given us an incredible gift, an inspired resource for us to use, to learn from, to grow with, to use, to help to lead others to him. So yes, the Bible is important and that's what we're gonna spend the remainder of our time talking about. We're gonna begin in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Now most people just quote one of these verses and that's verse 16, but we're gonna take this whole thing Together, starting in verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And from and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Here's the money verse. All scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now Paul is writing to his understudy, his son in the faith, a man named Timothy, who is now guiding and leading a church that Paul had planted. He gave Timothy a reminder, stay the course, have faith in what you have learned. You see, Timothy's parents were Jewish. His mom, his grandma were Jews growing up. And so he had knowledge of the Jewish scriptures. Don't forget the scriptures you learned as that Jewish boy, because they all pointed to this time that you're preaching about now, this time of Jesus. Continue to allow them to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So is the Bible important? Absolutely, yes. Is the Bible what we worship? Well, in some churches, you might think so. I know of churches where somebody decided to change from using the King James Version, and that was the end of the world because the King James is the, I've heard the commercial on the radio. It still exists. I can tell you where the church is. They advertise in the southern part of Indianapolis. The King James is the only Bible. Well, that's funny because the Bible wasn't written in English especially Elizabethan English. So I'm not sure exactly how they can get to that conclusion without just going to the Greek and saying, well, this is our Bible. But then that would only be half of the Bible because the other half wasn't written in Greek either. So they got to translate Hebrew. So I don't know how they're going to justify that. But anyway, you get the picture. There's only three parts to the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, not God the Bible. 
Just keep that in mind as we study this book. It's an incredible resource for us to learn about God, about his people. It's a means by which God has chosen to reveal himself to us through the inspired words of men. It is an incredible book, but it's not really just a book. It's a library of books. You know this, many of you. It's 66 books. It's a whole library. It was written by 40 different authors on three continents in three different languages, mostly Greek and Hebrew, but a little Aramaic sprinkled in here and there, over the course of 1,600 years. There's nothing else like it on planet Earth, nothing even close, and it is an essential part to our modern faith in Jesus. You see, the early believers didn't have such a privilege. Do you think if they had such a privilege that they would have made use of the Bible as a focal point for their gatherings? Of course they would have. They would have been foolish not to. Those that did have a written letter from Paul or maybe one of the disciples, the Gospels, they certainly used that as a part of their get-togethers and to converse with one another, to challenge each other, to grow in their faith. But in the modern church, we've kind of taken the other approach in a lot of churches. Unfortunately, there's a lot of churches out there that discount the Bible and the teachings that exist therein. Yes, they might go and casually reference the Bible from time to time, or you can watch some entire messages and never, ever hear a verse, ever. I went to a wedding yesterday where the name of Jesus and the name of God weren't spoken one time, not one passage at all, period. Yeah, that happens. They might tell a short story or two or have a short outline about how to improve your life, and then they move on. There's many famous pastors of huge churches that do just such a thing. I heard it illustrated like this. There were a group of kids that went down to the park to play a game of football. They all gathered around. One of the kids realized, hey, we forgot the football. So the leader of the group stood up and said, hey, forget the football. Let's just play the game. In reality, that's what happens in a lot of churches today. Forget the Bible. Let's get on with the service. So why bother with the Bible of all at all? Well, quite honestly, because it's a gift from God to us one which the first followers didn't have and perhaps didn't even need in their life. Their faith was very different than ours. It was incredibly strong. They didn't leave God or the church because they didn't like the music or the color or the pews or the temperature. They didn't leave the church when they were threatened with their life. As a matter of fact, they were executed because of their faith. Big difference than our culture today, isn't it? For sure, their faith was strong, even though it was illegal. Today, we live in a very different world. God knew that would happen. The transformation started many, many years ago. God knew that there would be those of us that misuse Scripture, even people that claim to be his greatest followers and leaders of the church, those that would strive to keep the people, the followers, and anyone else outside of the faith from actually knowing or learning what was ever actually in this book. We'll talk about that in the future a little bit. They didn't want God, anyone to know what God, the word of God really actually said. But God knew that in the year 2016, the global adult literacy rate would be 86%. Did you hear that? 86% of the world can read? What? That's a far cry from the numbers from earlier. But let me just give you an update of how recent this occurrence is. In 1820, in 1820, it's thought the literacy rate was 12%. Yeah, nearly 100 years after the founding of our country, well, about halfway to that first 100-year mark, 
12% of the world could read. So even if the Bible existed back in the first century, no one could have read it at all. God knew the tool the Bible would become, but you see, he also knew the problems that would arise. So here we go. Brief, brief history of the Bible. What is the Bible? Go ahead and answer that question. Just turn to your neighbor. Tell him, here's what the Bible is. Just go ahead. If somebody walked up on the street and said, hey, what's the Bible? How would you answer that question? Now, some of you might say something really religious, like, well, it's the inspired word of God. You're going to have to define that to someone that doesn't know what the Bible is, aren't you? I'm not arguing that you're incorrect. I'm saying, does anyone know what that just meant? If someone asked you, well, what's the inspired word of God? You would say, well, the Bible. <laughs> See, you can't do that. You can't use the answer and you can't play that game with people. You have to think about this. It's a hard question. What is the Bible? Well, it's, it's the Bible. See, for us, it's always existed. It's, it's always been a part of our life, but there are so many where that's not the case. So let's start with the scriptures and where they start, and that is with the Jews. Paul, the author of much of the New Testament, writes in Romans 3, 2, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. I said it earlier, the Bible, this amazing book, it's not a book, 66 books, 40 authors, three continents, three languages, 1,600 years it took to compile it. And anyone who opens this book can immediately find that there's two unequal sections. The first section, the Old Testament, much thicker than the second section, the New Testament. The first half, the Old Testament, as it's labeled, contains the books of law, the books of history, the Psalms, other wisdom literature, and then the prophets. It was written to and about the Jewish people and their God. The second half, or New Testament, as it is labeled, contains what are called the Gospels, the historical book of Acts, the epistles, or the letters, and one book of prophecy or apocalyptic literature known as Revelation. Now, the word testament actually means covenant. We don't know what the word testament means. We really don't. We, we just read it because it's just part of the Bible. But the real word is, is covenant. Most modern teachers and scholars really, really wish that those that originally translated it into the English language would have used the word covenant to begin with because it describes so well what those two sections are all about. The first being God's covenant, God's agreement, God's contract, God's promise with Moses and the Hebrew nation. The old covenant, as it should now be called, has truly been replaced. Not updated, not added to, but fully fulfilled once and for all through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. That eliminates a lot of uncertainty for people in how to interact with the Bible. The New Testament or the New Covenant, the one which fully replaces the Old Testament law and covenant. God establishes this new covenant, this new contract through his son, Jesus. And this covenant alone makes it possible for anyone who's willing to believe in him to never perish but have everlasting life. Jesus paid the price for our sins. Jesus is the only source of our salvation. It is not Jesus and anything else. It is Jesus alone. So if we break down the Bible, Paul records in Romans 3 that there is an advantage to being a Jew. Absolutely, there is and was. It was the Jews who were entrusted with the very words of God. Now, the Jews didn't write these things by themselves at all. But they're definitely responsible for keeping the first part of that book that we have around and alive and together for all of us. In many ways, Christians today are very similar to those early 
Jews. Though the Bible is available to everyone at this point in history, other than some cultures that we haven't translated it into yet, very few people have studied it, and even fewer people understand it. It is so unique in so many ways. Yes, you could read it as one continuous story from beginning to end of God's creation, his love for that creation, the rebellion of man, and then God's rescue plan for all of mankind. But this book is a little bit like the modern day math book. Now, for those of us that went to school a few years ago, our math book didn't have this in the back. For anyone that's gone recently, what's in the back of the math book? All the answers. Yeah, the Bible is a lot. No, Ray's like, what? The Bible, you would have done so much better. Anyway, um, the Bible is a lot like that. It's a little easier to start reading from the back of the book. The new covenant, the one that pertains to us and our relationship directly with God, contains the answers. And by the way, the answer's name is Jesus. I might point you in the direction of a little book named John. Because I love that book and you know that, but it describes so well the person, the teacher, the Savior, and the friend that Jesus is. So who wrote the Bible? That is a great question. We do know with fair certainty who wrote most of the Bible. There are a few books that there's some uncertainty about for sure. But the Bible has dual authorship on a generic level. On one hand, God absolutely had a hand in writing it. But on another hand, man absolutely had a hand in writing it. God spoke into the work, but there is also a very clear voice of man as well. It makes these texts completely unique from the writings of any other religion. We read earlier, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. In a message by Alistair Begg called, Why Bother with the Bible? He describes it this way. God breathed out the scriptures in a very natural way. The same breath that he spoke the universe into creation. God's role in the creation of the scriptures provide them with the reliability and their authority. Again, God's role in the creation of the scriptures provide them with the reliability and with their authority. It is not by the hand of man that such things exist. God spoke revealing truth, but he also helped keep the human authors from error. This allowed the human authors to fully express their personalities through the writings of God's word without distorting their message. I would challenge you to read from some of those prophets and tell me that those were all God's words put in there. As some of those prophets describe the characteristics of the people and what they think about the people. You see, man's words are mixed in there. It's inspired by God. It's their personalities that put the flavor to some of the things that we read. The apostle Peter and 1 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, describe this absolutely perfectly. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will. But the prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And you will actually read that sometimes. Sometimes the prophets, the people writing, will say, these are my words, not God's. They'll literally record that in the Bible. Alistair Begg said it this way, the authors of the Bible didn't wake up one morning and go, you know what? I think I'm going to write the Bible today. I think that'd be a great thing to put on my agenda for things to do. Paul was not charged with writing the Bible, the New Testament, as we know it today. 
They were writing in response to their issues, to their culture. They were moved by the Spirit of God. This was not a mechanical process. They weren't forced to sit down and record these words as God dictated them to each of these authors. They were inspired to put the thoughts of God into their words and their personalities to address their people and their issues of their time and into ours as well. The Bible was not written by the church. The prophets and the apostles wrote the word to the people of God. The reliability, the power in those words are the work of the Holy Spirit moving through them, God's breath. This is why, this is why the church has absolutely no right to rewrite what God has written. In other words, we the church have no authority at all to rewrite what is in this book or to change the verbiage of what's in this book to make it more socially acceptable or to make it more current with our times. It says, be careful of anyone who tells you that what's in this book doesn't matter now. We've moved past that. It's not relevant anymore. As if the word of God was given and has now become irrelevant. In the scriptures, God was and is speaking to us. Those first five books of the Bible were authored by Moses. There's much about when the actual Hebrew Bible, the, the Old Testament, if you will, of, of our Bibles, was actually put together. It was originally thought to be around 600 BC, but now they're dating it a little farther back, maybe as far back as 800 BC, and I wouldn't be surprised if they find before too long, even a little bit further, they were putting these ancient scrolls together in what we would call the Hebrew Bible. But as a whole, they didn't come together till that time and then a little after because the book of Malachi wasn't written until after 600 BC. The books of the Old Testament were written by a whole host of people. Most of them were written or orally presented by those which bear their name. For example, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi, Hosea, Joel, Jonah, just to name a few of them. These were God's spokesmen. They had a message for his people and their leaders and the prophets were given these messages from God. They were passed down from generation to generation. And we know this because we see the actual occurrences take place that the prophets spoke of. The prophet Jeremiah is a perfect example in his book, his letter, if you will, 22 and 29, those two chapters, he predicts that the nation of Israel will be taken into captivity by Babylon and then will be returned 70 years later. Well, that literal prediction actually came true and they would have known about that. One of my favorite examples of the proof that these texts, physical, actual texts existed during ancient times was a scene from King Josiah's reign in Judah, one of the very few good kings that Israel had. He was the king that became king at the age of eight. He was the boy king of Israel. He sent a team to rescue the temple, to put it back together. It was in a state of disrepair. He served in the mid-600s BC. In 2 Kings chapter 22, we read the story. While working on the temple, Hilkiah, the high priest, found the book of law in the temple of the Lord. They reported to the king Josiah and he read from it. They read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders, go and inquire of the Lord of me and for the people and for all of Judah about what is written in the book that has been found. Great is the Lord anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Imagine, Imagine, even though the Jewish people had the law, they even had a written copy of the law, they didn't have a clue 
what was in it. Now, that could never happen today, could it? We could never live in a culture where at our very fingertips at any second we want, we could have the entire words, teachings, life story of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and yet have absolutely no idea what he really taught. Could we? We have a lot in common with those ancient Jews, don't we? The Hebrew Bible, though, is an incredible story. It was translated into Greek in the mid-3rd century B.C. This book was called the Septuagint. It's a fun word to say. It means very little to us in our language, but it's a fun word. And there's a fascinating history about that translation, how it was put together, what it meant for the world. We don't have time to go into that history of all that, but I would challenge you because it is very very interesting. But why did this happen? Well, a guy named Alexander the Great kind of conquered the known world, and he brought the Greek language to all of the known world. So much of the culture spoke the Greek language. The Septuagint translation did something very unique. It translated the Hebrew scriptures, and now they were available to both Jews, who no longer spoke their native Hebrew because they would have been a huge population at that point in time. But more importantly, it translated the ancient Jewish scriptures into the modern Greek-speaking world. You see, now the God of the Jews was becoming known to those outside of the Jewish tradition 300 years before the time of Christ. Now, out of curiosity, do you think that maybe, just maybe, God had a little hand in that happening? Do you think God was preparing the way, say, for something special? to occur not so far down the road? If, if you read Galatians 4.4, Paul reminds us that at just the right time, God sent his son, Jesus. And that's the end of the Old Testament. The prophet Malachi lived about 450 years before the time of Jesus, and then there was this silence after that prophetic word. So then on to the New Testament. What about the Gospels, the epistles or letters of Paul, the other books of the New Testament? As I said earlier, Paul is credited with writing a majority of those 27 books. We're not going to cover every author of every book at this point, but you know this, I love covering the author of the book when we go to study the book. It's important, it's essential, it's context, it's a huge key in helping us understand that book or that letter. Who is the guy that wrote it? What is he about? What is his history? What's his relationship with Jesus? The identity of the author and their perspective on Jesus helps us understand and then apply the text to our lives even still today, like we did with John last summer. So expect at least a brief description of nearly every author that we ever study together or that is credited with writing those books. Let's review. The Bible, as we know it, is it important? Yes! I don't think we can argue that. I, I think it's essential to our modern faith. Is it what we worship? No. No, there's only God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit which we worship. The Bible is the source for us to learn about God and his people to mean by which God has chosen to reveal himself to us through the inspired words of men. It is an incredible, incredible gift from God. And he alone could have kept this book intact through all the world. Think of all the world has thrown at this book in its history, including the ancient Jews. What is the Bible? Well, it's not just a book. It's a collection of books, 66 in fact. 40 people, three continents, three languages, 1,600 years it took to assemble. Who wrote it? That dual authorship thing, part God, part man. God spoke into this work, but that there's also this voice. It's really human 
There's a lot of humanity in here. It's ugly at times. And it's been recorded for us to see who we are and who God is. And it gives us a better understanding of Jesus, of his love, and his teachings. Now, I'm excited because I couldn't fit it all into one week. So next week, we're literally going to talk about how this book that I hold in my hands was actually assembled for us. The process we went through in modern times to come up with this. How this book, even though it was put together in 376, 396 AD, how this book was not in the hands of the common man until just a few years ago, really, in, in relative to overall history. It's a fascinating process, and it's very interesting to see how God moved through those people. So I'm excited about that context for next week. I'll close with this quote from a famous old-time pastor named Charles Spurgeon. If God has spoken, listen. If God has recorded his words in a book, search its pages with a believing heart. If you do not accept it as God's inspired word, I can't invite you to pay any particular attention to it. But if you regard it as the book of God, I charge you, as I shall meet you at the judgment seat of Christ, study the Bible daily. Treat not the eternal God with disrespect, but delight in his word. Read your Bibles, love your Bibles, and bring your Bibles to church. You see, belief in Jesus actually confirms that this book is true. This book does not all by itself confirm who Jesus is. Too many people flip that around. We've got to consider that. Father God, we thank you for your word. And for many of us, your word is what in part led us to you. It's an incredible tool, an incredible resource. It is the way we can go and learn and see who you are, what you've done, the covenant that you have formed with us, this new covenant through the blood of Christ. Father, we all have questions. We're never going to get all of those questions answered. But just the simple fact that this book exists is an incredible miracle with all it has been through and all the challenges it has faced. And yet time and time again, we just see it prove true and true and true. And so if there's anybody here today that this book has been an obstacle for them to overcome in believing in you, I pray that their eyes and hearts and spirit were opened today by the moving of the Spirit in their lives to go, you know what? This book, there may be something behind it. And this Jesus that it talks about, I want him as my Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you for this moment and for these words that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray.